Welcome to the Shift Gold Friday Gold Wrap, your overview of news impacting the precious metals markets. It's Friday, September 15th. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. Thanks for tuning in. You know, I feel like we're in a slow burn. Like there's a fire smoldering somewhere in the walls, but nobody knows it's there. You might catch a little whiff of smoke now and then, but most people just ignore it or they brush it off if they do smell it. By and large, everything seems fine. But you know, if there is a fire smoldering in your wall, everything is not fine, right? At some point, it's going to ignite. It's going to burst into flames. It's going to destroy a lot. The thing is, fires can smolder for a long time before they actually explode into flames. A really long time. That's kind of what I think is going on with the economy and the markets right now. Most people don't get it. They think everything is fine. Ladies and gentlemen, everything is not fine. In fact, it hasn't been fine for decades, right? The fire has been smoldering since like the 1990s. It's flamed up a couple of times, most significantly in 2008. But even before that, when the dot-com bubble burst. But they managed to douse the flames. The thing is, they never put the fire out. They didn't get down to the source of the fire. So it smoldered again for another decade. Flames were about to break out in like 2018, 2019. But then there was the big explosion down the street, right? COVID-19, government lockdowns. And the firefighters showed up and they put out the fire. And while they dealt with that explosion, they also tamped down that original fire again. But once again, they didn't get to the source. In fact, they added more fuel, ensuring that when it does go up in flames again, it's going to burn even hotter for even longer. But for now, it's just smoldering. And most people are completely unaware. There is smoke, though, right? If you know where to look, if you're willing to acknowledge it, the CPI report this week, that was a wisp of smoke. Now, everybody thought inflation was dead and buried, right? In fact, they still think that despite the price inflation spike in August. That's because they still don't get it. They don't understand that price inflation is the result of more than a decade of easy money supplemented by another massive infusion of easy money during COVID. You don't undo more than a decade of artificially low interest rates and $8 trillion in quantitative easing with a few rate hikes for a year or so and a half-hearted balance sheet reduction. The Fed has done enough to cool the inflation flames. It's done enough to keep the fire inside the wall. But the fire is still burning. And in August, it started to flame up a little bit again. As I predicted on this very show, a jump in gasoline prices helped drive the August CPI higher. And that threw a little bit of cold water on the disinflation narrative, or at least in my opinion, it should. Consumer prices rose by 0.6% month-on-month in August, according to the latest data. It was the biggest monthly gain of 2023, and it drove the headline annual CPI back up to 3.7% after it dipped to 3.2% in July. 
This was slightly hotter than the 3.6% projection. Now, the mainstream is going to tell you that it was just gasoline prices. Price inflation would be under control if it wasn't for rising prices at the gas pump. So, I don't know. I guess we're just supposed to pretend gasoline prices aren't rising. I, I, maybe we should just quit going to the gas station. That would solve it, right? It was actually kind of funny. Justin Wolfers, he's an Australian economist who is of the Paul Krugman ilk. He was talking up the CPI report because the core number was only up by 0.3%. I'll dig into the core here in a second. But he said that means inflation is getting beat. But economist Bob Murphy made a great point. He responded, quote, what's funny is actual CPI, double that, 0.6% in August, driven by gasoline prices. So when Krugman slash Wolfers lament dumb Americans falling for Fox propaganda, it's because rubes don't know they're supposed to take out energy prices when assessing current inflation. Murphy is making a very important point. While pointy-headed academics can just ignore rising gasoline prices for the sake of their cute little academic arguments, we can't just stop buying gasoline, right? Rising gas prices are a thing. We have to pay them. It's not like we get a rebate uh, in our bank account. You know, somebody doesn't come along and put money back in our bank account for food and gas uh, just because the uh, powers that be don't want to count those in CPI. It's a little bit off-putting that these guys want to pretend like gasoline and, and food prices don't matter. Of course they matter. We have to pay them. So it's a little bit disingenuous to to yank those out of the consumer price index and uh, you know, swear up and down that everything is just fine. But regardless, even factoring out gasoline and food costs, we're still seeing inflationary pressures. Core CPI, which stripped those things out, uh, also heated up a bit, rising by 0.3% month on month. The projection was for a 0.2% increase, which is what we had in both June and July. So, I guess if you look at the core, it's kind of a glass, half-empty, glass, half-full kind of thing. You can be optimistic and say 0.3% is relatively cool, especially compared to what we saw earlier in the year. But, you know, you can also be a pessimist, say the glass is half-empty, and recognize that it did tick up in August compared to both June and July. So, um, you know... I don't know that you can call one month a trend, but the one month uh, trend is higher, right? And regardless, the core CPI isn't anywhere near the 2% target. On an annual basis, core came in at 4.3%. Now, that was down from 4.7% in July, so yay. Um, And on the more uh, pessimistic side, the decrease was largely a function of math as the large increases in the core CPI last year starting to roll out of the calculation. Looking at the monthly increases so far for all of 2023 kind of tells a different story. It reveals that core CPI remains sticky. So, On a monthly basis, it was up 0.4% in January, 0.5% in February, 0.4% in March uh, and in April and in May. Then uh, we had 0.2% in June and July, 
and 0.3% in August. So if you average all of those out, it comes to 0.35% per month. So if you want to round up, 0.4% is kind of the average that we've run uh, this year with CORE. Um, so if you annualize that, 0.35%, if that's the trend that holds for the rest of the year, you're looking at a 4.2% annual core CPI. That's still more than double the Fed's 2% target. Now, our uh, boy Wolfers used the last three months to argue that the trend is that core is coming down. So you got 0 0.2, 0 0.2, 0 0.3. Uh, but if you look at the whole year, it's a little bit harder to be so optimistic. To put the monthly core CPI increase in perspective, you would need to average just under 0.17% to hit the 2% target. Now, I'm not great at math, but I do know 0.3 is nearly double that. So the trend right now is double what the Fed's target is supposed to be, just looking at the core. And of course, as I remind you every time I talk about CPI, we're using a rigged formula here. If we were using the CPI formula that was used back in the 70s, we would be seeing numbers about double what we're seeing today. But of course, they fixed, and I'm using air quotes around fixed, they fixed the formula in the 90s so that it would make price inflation not look quite so bad. So, CPI is probably closer to 7.5% um, than it is to 36 and, and by the way, producer prices also rose more than expected last month. The PPI increased by 0.7% in August. And, you know, the PPI is kind of a leading indicator because that's the prices that producers are paying. And those tend to get, at least some of that price, tends to get passed on to consumers. So if you see a big jump in producer prices, that will often show up in consumer prices a couple of months down the road. So, you know, I guess what I'm saying is there's no reason to think that we're going to start seeing these numbers come down. Oil prices are still going up. We're holding uh, above $90 a barrel um, uh, during the week this week, or we were at that level. Um, so that's not looking like it's going to come down anytime soon. And if we're seeing producer prices high, then that means consumer prices are probably going to be sticky as we move into the end of the year as well. So um, that... 0.7% PPI was the highest level since, get this, June 2022, uh, so more than a year ago, and it nearly doubled the market expectations of 0.4%. So the producer price, uh, that was a bad, bad bit of data, if you actually believe in the disinflation narrative. Now, again, you can say, well, this is just rising gas prices because that was a big factor in the rising producer prices. Core PPI was just 0.2%. So that's great if producers can figure out how to quit using fuel, but of course they can't. So again, these prices, they have to pay them, so they're going to pass them on. Uh, rising oil prices tend to create a lot of higher prices throughout the economy. Now, that's not inflation. I need to make that clear. It's not necessarily inflation. Inflation, as I define it, when I'm talking about it, if I say inflation, I'm talking about an increase in the money supply. 
what the government is doing to basically devalue your currency. Price inflation is a symptom of monetary inflation. So oil prices rising, part of that is inflation. Part of that is an increase in the money supply. And part of that has to do with supply, demand, price shocks, things like that. Um, Biden was able to kind of mask the inflationary impact on oil by selling a bunch of oil from the strategic reserve. Uh, Nice trick. You know, that brought prices down by increasing supply. But that trick pony's done. Uh, That rabbit is long gone, can't be pulled out of the hat again. And so the fact of the matter is um, we're seeing these oil prices go up and there's nothing that the uh, administration can do to hide at this time. Now, again, a lot of it has to do with supply and demand, but there's still this underlying monetary inflationary pressure that is pushing all prices higher than they otherwise would be. And then you add on top of that the increase of oil that's going to get passed on. The bottom line is we can expect to see prices that we're paying continue to rise. And that's bad news if you're a consumer, right? Um, I got a little bit off track there. I didn't really mean to get into all of that, but I think it's just important to make those distinctions. There's two reasons that prices are going up. One is monetary inflation. Thank you, Fed. And then part of it is just the normal supply and demand dynamics that we have in all markets. So um, looking at the CPI again, the overall energy index was up 5.6% month on month, and that was driven by a big 10.6% spike in gasoline. Um, And that's just from July to August. Fuel oil also charted a big 9.1% increase. So that is a big chunk of the CPI, no doubt about it. But food costs also shot up. Um, they rose 0.6%. So that's a healthy increase month on month in food. Shelter costs rose for the 40th consecutive month, uh, charting a 0.3% increase. Interestingly, airfares had a big 4.9% month-on-month increase in August. Um, As a result, the transportation index beat out shelter as the largest driver of core CPI for the first time uh, in quite a while. Uh, BBG noted that, quote, a re-rise in transport CPI would be a problem for stocks and bonds, as it has been the primary driver of inflation's fall over the last several months. So again, you know, it's easy to get confused and conflated when you talk about inflation and price inflation. But what this is all telling us is that these numbers, the CPI, which the Federal Reserve uses to plan its monetary policy, there's a lot of pressure pushing prices upward. Um, let's see, rent Equivalent rent, motor vehicle insurance, medical care, and personal care also charted big price increases last month. Interesting. Uh, My wife was just telling me this, and this is just kind of shows you 
that I think in a lot of ways, these these data, uh, the CPI, it understates the impact of rising prices on the average person. Uh, my my mother-in-law lives with us, and her health is is deteriorating somewhat. We're, we, we've been looking for the last year at the possibility of having to put her into an assisted living setting. And my wife did some research and some pricing about six months ago, and... Um, we, we've got a situation now where um, it's becoming more imminent. So she was looking at some of those prices again, uh, wanting to go visit some of these facilities. Prices have risen like hundreds and hundreds of dollars just in six months. So this is real. It's impacting real per- people. It's impacting us. Um, and of course, you know, as is typical, your paycheck isn't keeping up. With these rising prices. In a separate release, the BLS revealed that real average hourly earnings declined 0.5% uh, for the month. So, in other words, you might be getting a raise. You might be looking at your paycheck and saying, Ooh, I made a little bit more money, but that raise is not buying as much stuff. Your purchasing power is declining. That means your standard of living is declining. On a little side note along those lines, uh, retail sales in August came out this week, and they beat expectations. And of course, everybody was all excited about that because, you know, it proves that the American consumer is strong, or as one headline put it, the American consumer is hanging on. Now, of course, that's not what it means. It just proves that they have credit cards. Remember how everybody was all geeked up in July because retail sales were strong? Well, as it turns out, consumers paid for that spending spree by charging it. We got the consumer credit data for July this week, and as it turns out, revolving credit, which is primarily credit card debt, was up 9.2% in July. And I'll link to an article in the show notes page with more detail on that consumer debt. It ain't pretty. Um... But, you know, I've talked about how Americans have blown through their savings. Um, At some point, they're also going to max out these credit cards. The strong American consumers these mainstream pencil heads keep talking about are actually broke and running up debt. This isn't sustainable. Yeah, they're hanging on. They're only hanging on because they've depleted their savings and they're running up credit cards. And even the mainstream is starting to recognize that this isn't sustainable. Bloomberg reported, quote, despite persistent inflation and high interest rates, consumer spending has remained resilient and helped power the economy. Some have uh, resorted to credit cards and savings to do so. Uh, And I think when they say some, they mean most. Um, But with savings shrinking and delinquencies on the rise, some economists doubt the current spending momentum is sustainable. And the economists who think that it is sustainable, uh, they need to find a new line of work. You know, blowing through savings that's gone and running up credit cards that have limits is not sustainable, period, end of story. Um, oh, and by the way, student loan repayment is scheduled to restart in October, and this is going to put even more strain on debt-saddled consumers. I did an article a couple of weeks ago about the uh, um, the res- resumption of student loan payments. I'll, I'll 
dig that up and put that in the show notes page as well. Um, I don't think people paid a whole lot of attention to that when I wrote it, but this is going to have a big impact. You've got a lot of people, a lot of people who are all of a sudden going to have to start making payments that they haven't had to make in like two or three years. That's going to put even more strain on people's budget. Who are, they're already struggling with higher prices. They're already struggling with declining real wages. They're already running up credit cards. Their savings is gone, and now they've got to make student loan repayments. Um, you know, this is a little bit more of that smoke. You smell it? It's that smoke from the smoldering fire that's inside the walls that I was talking about. So anyway, back to CPI. The market reaction was pretty interesting. Gold was actually up a little bit after the data came out. When it very first came out, it dropped, uh, which I think that's just computer algorithms. They're programmed for that. Uh, any kind of bad news is good news kind of thing. Um, so, so gold dropped a little bit, and then it rose um, after the data came out. And it was up a couple of bucks on Thursday as well. You know, I, I kind of thought that it might drop below 1900 again. I thought that you would get uh, a hotter than expected CPI, which we did, uh, an increase in price inflation. And that would make everybody think, oh, no, the Fed's going to have to raise interest rates some more, hold them higher. You know, it's the typical thing that we've seen for well over a year. Anytime we get... Uh, bad CPI data, then uh, and everybody freaks out and thinks that the Fed is going to get tighter and that has uh, pushed gold and silver both lower. Didn't really happen this time. In fact, there was not much of a reaction at all. Uh, there was a little bit more of a reaction in stocks. Uh, stocks rallied on the news. And actually, on Thursday, the Dow was up big, well over 300 points. And that's because the mainstream looked at the CPI report and they concluded inflation is done. Think about that a second. They looked at a big jump in CPI and concluded that prices are falling and that the Fed has won the inflation fight. How does this make sense? It doesn't. It's all spin. And really what it is, and I've talked about this before, it's rooted in kind of the, 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 the way... The, the kind of economic foundation that people are operating on. They're operating on faulty premises, and those faulty premises drive their perceptions. Anyway, um, you know, they're kind of thinking that the, the, the Fed is one, so we might get one more rate hike. Um, I, I still don't think most people think we're going to get a rate hike in September, but maybe before the end of the year, we'll get one more. But basically, the Fed's done. Uh, the Fed can go back to cutting. In fact, Krugman declared the inflation fight was won. And I thought what Peter Schiff tweeted was funny. He said, quote, I agree with Krugman that the war has been won, but I disagree on the winner. It's obvious to those of us without a Nobel Prize that inflation is the winner. And, you know, it's not just Krugman. I mean, this is pretty much the mainstream sentiment. They are convinced that with interest rates at, what, 5.5%, uh, they've shed almost a trillion dollars off the balance sheet. This is it. I mean, they've done it. They've held in there. They fought the good fight. They beat down inflation, even though CPI is going up. Of course, CPI looks okay, kind of maybe, depending on how you spin it. But the, the Fed has won, and they think the Fed has won because I, I think more than anything, they want the Fed to have won because they want their easy money back. Um, 
This is from a mainstream article I ran across. Quote, the Fed's rate hike cycle most assuredly ended in July. Uh, This was uh, a quote from investing group leader Lawrence Fuller. Um, And uh, this is as core figures signal the inflation is continuing to moderate. So, yeah, you you pile some bad premises, some bad economic reasoning, some bad fundamental economic understanding, and you pile some perceptions on top of that, and uh, and this is what you get. You know what the irony of all of this is? They think that since inflation is beat, the Fed can go back to creating inflation. I mean, that's literally what they want to happen. That's the plan. The Fed beats price inflation so that the Fed can go back to creating inflation. They want the easy money. They think there is some point in the near future where we can go back to 2% CPI and 0% interest rates. Ladies and gentlemen, that ain't happening. Yes, it happened after 2008. It was an anomaly, not the norm. And I think the Fed knows this. You know, even if they think they have a handle on inflation, they aren't about to start cutting rates. Core is still more than double the target, right? They're going to hold rates higher as long as they can. And I'm pretty convinced they're going to hike at least one more time this year. They may even surprise us with the September hike. Maybe not. You know, they tend to do what the markets anticipate. They're able to send enough signals, kind of use their open mouth operations to get the mainstream thinking where they want to go, and then that's where they go. But I don't know. I I just... I, I. I can't see them being able to plausibly say that they beat inflation at this point when you have this kind of CPI data. Um, It is what it is. The data is what it is. And and the Fed keeps saying they're data dependent. Well, there you go. Right. Um, But, you know, the bottom line is, and I've been harping on this for months, the economy can't function in this relatively high interest rate environment. The economy was built for easy money. The economy was built for money printing. The economy is built on low interest rates. You can't have an economy that is basically all debt in a high interest rate environment. It just doesn't work. So I've said that over and over again. What I think is going to happen is the fire that's smoldering in the walls is going to break out. The flames are going to become visible. The bubbles are going to pop. Things are going to break in the financial system. And again, we've already seen the beginning of that with the little financial crisis. The banks are still a mess. I did another article this week on the Fed, how much money the Fed is losing. Uh, The Fed is actually in the same position as a lot of commercial banks. Um, It's got all kinds of unrealized losses due to uh, the uh, decline of its bond portfolio. And it is paying out higher interest Uh, than what it's collecting. So it's losing money. But of course, the Fed doesn't have to worry about that because it gets to create its own accounting tricks. Uh, If you want to dig into that, I'll put that on the show notes page as well. But anyway, all of that's going to happen. The economy's going to crash. And yeah, at that point, the Fed is probably going to go back to rate cuts in QE. I mean, yeah, that's in the cards. It's just not going to happen as soon as I think the markets would like, and it's not going to happen for the reason they they think, because they're still convinced that we're going to have the soft landing. The economy's still strong, right? It's not strong. It's a big debt bubble, uh, and, and it's being propped up by people with credit cards. I, it's not strong, uh, but but that's where we are. Um, 
You know, here's another bit of smoke that uh, you can kind of sniff if you're paying attention. Um, Massive budget deficits uh, from the federal government. Now, you might have heard that the uh, government ran a surplus in August. That was kind of the headlines, and technically it did run a surplus in August. But it wasn't because Biden fixed the budget problem, right? We didn't get a bunch of spending cuts. In fact, the administration continued to spend money at an unsustainable pace last month. You notice unsustainable is kind of the, uh, the, the, the key word of this, uh, of this show today. Uh, unsustainable. But, uh, yeah, the federal government is spending money at an unsustainable pace. And it's another reason that the Fed is not going to win the inflation fight. It can't win the inflation fight when... The U.S. government keeps creating all of this fiscal stimulus. But um, the surplus that you might have heard about was merely a function of the reversal of student loan forgiveness. So we had student loan forgiveness that was actually factored into the national debt back in, uh, I believe it was September of last year. Well, they reversed that out in August. Uh, so it created an accounting surplus, but it's not really a surplus. The spending was still tremendously high, just like it has been month after month. Uh, I will link to another article uh, that breaks down the monthly treasury statement in the show notes. It's got a lot of stuff you can go check out in the show notes this week. So, this again is another big problem for the Fed. Uh, you know, once again, the government spent almost as much just paying interest on the debt as it did for national defense in August. And that interest expense is only going to increase as lower yielding bonds mature, bonds that you know they, they issued a while back, they're, they're mature, and then they have to be replaced with higher yielding bonds because interest rates are so much higher now. You know, then this is, of course, because the government is running a Ponzi scheme where it has to borrow money to pay off the money uh, to... Uh, it has to borrow money to pay the people who borrowed money earlier. Uh, the very definition of a Ponzi scheme. So, yet another fire smoldering in the walls. The national debt is unsustainable. The interest expense is unsustainable. The fire will eventually break out. I should have called this episode unsustainable. Anyway, you know what you need, right? You need fire insurance. You're going to get a fire, you want fire insurance. What is fire insurance in this scenario? Gold and silver. That reminds me of uh, something that I want to uh, use to close out the show. I'm actually going to respond to a comment that some dude made on Facebook. Um, this was on the Shift Cold Facebook page. I don't normally do this, but if he's thinking this, I kind of feel like other people might be thinking it too. And it should be addressed because it's dumb. He asserted that, quote, silver coins are junk. And why are they junk? Because as he put it, quote, silver is not rare. Okay, sir, but it is. Now, of course, rare is a relative term, right? Silver is relatively abundant compared to gold. In other words, it's less rare than gold. But... Silver is extremely rare compared to copper. About 1.5 million tons of silver have been mined in history. Compare that to copper, we've had almost 700 million tons of copper mined in that same amount of time. Now, copper is actually very rare if you compare it to iron. 
So uh, over 3 billion tons of iron have been mined throughout history. So yeah, silver is not as rare as gold, but it's certainly rare compared to, you know, copper or iron or other elements. You know, it's, it's, it's rare compared to rocks. That's why it has value, right? Uh, it's not like you can just go pick up silver wherever you want. And I think it's more important, you know, when you're looking at the world of investing, silver is becoming increasingly rare uh, based on demand for the metal. Um, there has been a market deficit for silver over the last two years, and that is expected to increase. In fact, one study estimates that solar energy production, so making solar panels, is going to require over 20% of the current annual silver supply by 2027. So that's what, just four years down the road. And by 2050, solar panel production, uh, they estimate, will use approximately 85 to 98% of the current global silver reserves. Silver is not priced for that, ladies and gentlemen. So, you know, silver, the supply is already constrained. We had record silver demand in 2022, uh, there was a slight decrease in supply, and that contributed to a 23, I'm sorry, a 237.7 million ounce market deficit. It was the second consecutive annual deficit in a row, and the Silver Institute called it, quote, possibly the most significant deficit on record. It also noted that, quote, the combined shortfalls of the previous two years comfortably offset the cumulative surplus of the past 11 years. So, what I'm getting at here, the bottom line, is that silver is rare in both absolute terms and in relation to to demand for the metal. I have no idea what this guy was talking about. I think sometimes people just say things just because it sounds good. I think I think we live in a world where a lot of people kind of think if they make an assertion, then it's just going to be accepted as truth. I mean, there's data, right? Objectively, silver is rare. Um, this same guy also claimed that the silver-gold ratio isn't relevant in the modern world. I don't really have time to take a deep dive into that because I'm pretty much at the end of the show. But suffice to say, silver is fundamentally a monetary metal. Now, because of the significant industrial demand, its price is a lot more volatile than gold, but it has generally tracked with gold over time. That's why investors follow the movements of the silver-gold ratio, and they have for decades, because it's a thing. Gold bull markets pull silver up with them, and in fact, silver has historically outperformed gold during those runs. The pandemic provides the most recent example of this. So if you're bullish on gold, you should be bullish on silver. To say that ratio has no relevance uh, is, is ridiculous. I mean, we could have a debate about whether the, you know, what number of the, uh, in that ratio is relevant. I mean, I, I, I would accept that maybe we're going to see a higher average gold-silver ratio moving forward than maybe we did in the 20th century. But that doesn't mean that the connection's broken, that there's no relevance for this ratio at all. It's just silly. I, I have no idea what this dude uh, was talking about. Um, but our intrepid Facebook commenter did have a recommendation. He said we should buy numismatic coins with specific dates. 
Unfortunately, he wasn't kind enough to reveal to me exactly which dates I should be looking for or any kind of uh, specific recommendation uh, on coins. He just said uh, that we should be looking for collectibles and uh, bullion is junk. Um, And, you know, if that's his investment strategy, more power to him. I'm not here to tell anybody what to do. I'm simply providing information. Sometimes I'll tell you maybe what I might do. I might make recommendations. But if you don't want to invest in silver, don't invest in silver. If you don't want to invest in gold, don't invest in gold. If you don't want to, or if you do want to buy collectible coins, go for it. Now, I hope this guy realizes that he's paying extremely high premiums for these coins in the hope that somebody will want his collectible coin in the future. Always remember, you know, the value of something is only what people will pay for it. So you might have this collectible coin and you might look in a book and it might say, ooh, that coin is worth $100,000. Well, it's only worth $100,000 if you can find somebody who is willing to pay you $100,000. You may not even be able to find somebody who wants that collectible coin in the future. I mean, he may luck into a coin that makes him rich. Uh, It's... It's a possibility, and you know, I might find gold lying on the beach. (laughs) The more likely scenario is that he'll get stuck with a collectible coin nobody wants to buy at the price that he paid for it. Now, I know buying bullion coins like American Silver Eagles or Canadian Silver Maple Leafs, it's not sexy. But here's the thing. There will always be a market for these coins, and you know what they're worth. There's a market for them, and there's a price. You can go to the spot price of gold because these coins are valued on their metal, the content of the coin, not on some subjective collectible value, you know exactly how much it's going to be worth, and you know it's always there's always going to be a market there. There's always going to be somebody who's willing to buy these coins. And since they are value-based on the metal itself, it's not an arbitrary, subjective standard, um, you know exactly what you're getting with an American Silver Eagle coin. It's based on the price of silver. And if you think the price of silver is going to go up, then the price of that bullion coin is going to go up as well. Now, again, investing in silver might not be for everybody, but you're foolish to spurn silver just based on some dude's baseless assertions. Baseless assertions are not an argument. Now, if you want to learn more about how silver and gold can fit into your investment strategy, how they can serve as fire insurance uh, in a time when there's fire smoldering in the walls, call a Shift Gold Precious Metal Specialist today, 1-888-GOLD-160. Or if you don't want to talk on the phone, you can email info at shiftgold.com. Or you can just go to shiftgold.com, go to the Getting Started tab, and you can actually chat online in an online chat right there um, on the website. And these guys will help you. They'll answer your questions. They'll explain the different products. They'll help you figure out, based on your goals, on your strategy, where you are in your life, how precious metals might fit into your scenario uh, or to your investment portfolio. I guess it is a scenario, right? Anyway, give them a call today. And with that, I'm going to call this a gold wrap for the week. 
Of course, you can get more details on all of these stories and more and keep up with the latest precious metals news and analysis throughout the week over at shipgold.com slash news. And if you haven't done it already, you can subscribe to the Friday Gold Wrap. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. We're on the Ship Gold YouTube channel. We're on SoundCloud. You'll find links to all of this stuff on the show notes page. You can email me, mmahary, M-M-A-H-A-R-R-E-Y, at shipgold.com. Happy to hear from folks. And um, with that, I hope you have a fantastic weekend. And I will talk to you again next week.